Hi, and welcome to Long Live the Queen, where we talk about the women who made history. And by we, I mean the royal we, because it's just me. Today, we're going to talk about childbirth. Childbirth historically has been very dangerous. In the Middle Ages, one third of women died in the childbearing ages. Not all of these deaths were from childbirth. Some were accidents, disease, domestic violence. The reasons for women's death weren't always written down. An example of this is Catherine of Valois. She was 35 and pregnant with at least her seventh child. Catherine was the former Queen of England, the Queen Mother of King Henry VI. She had run off after the death of her husband, the King, with Owen Tudor, a Welsh man employed in her household. She went to Birdmansey Abbey, either to prepare for her birth or have some illness treated. For either reason, she had felt the need to write out a will, and she was correct. She did, in fact, die three days later. Childbirth is always a good guess. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Getting pregnant was a struggle all by itself. They didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have now. But like now, people were pretty sure they had it mostly down. They had domesticated animals, so they did have the basics down. But some of the details were fuzzy. It was thought that a woman was far too cold to conceive and needed a man's warmth. Semen was known about, and so was menstrual blood. So the generally accepted theory was that semen was the magic ingredient that would turn menstrual blood into a human. Kind of correct-ish. I mean, not really, but you can see how they came up with that theory. If we compare it to baking a cake, it was seen as the woman supplying all of the ingredients and the man supplying all of the tools, except the oven. The oven was, of course, the woman, but the man was in charge of preheating that oven. It was also a generally accepted fact that because men could not impregnate without reaching orgasm, that women could not be impregnated without also reaching orgasm. Meaning, if you were pregnant, it was because you enjoyed it. Women who came up pregnant after rape were seen as whores who were lying about not wanting it. Sperm wasn't discovered until 1677, and the human female egg wasn't discovered until 150 years later. So, like today, they were missing some key information, but you don't know what you don't know, and they were just working with what they had figured out, like we all are. The Catholic Church heavily controlled sex, and it was to be used only for the purpose of making more small humans. Having sex whenever you felt like it was seen, at least by the churches, as animalistic behavior. If you manage to avoid wandering womb hysteria, for more details, check out my episode on sex, then you were pregnant. Pregnant women were cherished and treated delicately. Having a baby was seen as making up for the sin of Eve. By having children, you were earning your way into heaven. That is a huge part of the reason it was worth the risk. Childbirth may kill you, but at least you knew where you were going if it did. Labors between peasants and noblewomen were very different. For peasants, 
The work would continue until labor. They couldn't afford an extended laying in period. Food had to be prepared, clothing had to be made, children had to be cared for. But when a mother was in labor, plans were put into motion. If you lived in a small town, there would likely be a midwife, but not always. Sometimes your best option was women who you knew who had gone through this before. If your hometown had an official midwife, she was likely licensed by the church. This was seen as a far more religious job than a medical one. But they didn't have cell phones, so usually the father of the baby would go out, not only to find the midwife, but also collect the gossips. Gossips were the women of the town, friends and family that would gather to support the birthing mother, however she needed. It was a community affair. This is also where the term gossip as we know it now originates. Women would gather for the birth, and what exactly they did was a mystery to the men. It was assumed that they got together to talk about, for lack of a better word, gossip. And to some degree, they probably did. Labors can be long, and this was a time when they could get together without husbands and children and just have some girl time, but also hopefully bring a living baby into the world to a living mother. Birthing girdles. These were a thing, but they probably aren't what you are thinking they are. They were more like a loose belt, six to eight inches wide and sometimes up to 10 feet long. Imagine them sort of like those bands you wear in labor to hold the baby monitor on your belly, except these would protect your baby in a very different way. They oftentimes had religious writing or names of saints on them, and you wrapped them around your belly for God's protection for you and your baby through this laboring process. Enter danger number one. While these relics were used to ease birthing mothers' minds and give reassurance that God was with them, they were often made of sheepskin and reused. Oftentimes, not even by the same woman. Churches had some that they would lend out to mothers in need of one. They weren't exactly sanitary. This was something that we know now would be ill-advised because it could easily introduce infection. The midwives were the only women allowed by the Catholic Church to baptize because in the event that a baby was not going to be born alive, they would need to be baptized. Midwives would sometimes reach into the womb and baptize a baby that wasn't even born yet. That brings us to danger number two. As I talked about before, sanitation was not seen as important, but they only had so many options at their disposal to keep things clean. They could only keep it so clean. Some birthing girdles that exist now have been tested. In addition to things that you would find on everyday objects like food residue, they also contain residue of cervical and amniotic fluids, leading us to assume that they use them leading up to and throughout the birthing process. Childbed fever was any infection that followed a birth. It was probably the most dangerous part. You had to rely on nothing except your own body and immune system to ward off infection. Like today, birth was a traumatic physical experience and getting cleaned up and stitched up and bandaged wasn't part of the deal. Then there were large babies, small mothers, or just plain bad positioning. Some babies were simply too large to get through their mother's birth canals, and the only option these mothers had was to keep pushing or die trying. 
there was no second option. Forceps didn't exist until around 1600, but they were also a heavily guarded secret open to only the wealthy. And that wasn't even a guarantee that they would be used properly and be safe. C-sections were an option, but really only if the mother was dead or dying and they wanted to attempt to save the baby. There was no way for the mother to survive a C-section. She would be cut open and then just allowed to die. This is how we know that Caesar was not born from a C-section, as is sometimes thought. His mother lived far too long to have gone through that process. Isabel Neville was 18 and pregnant in 1470. Her husband had rebelled against his brother, the king, and it hadn't gone so well. Isabella was forced to flee with her husband in a boat during a storm. She fled England for Calais. Calais, though, supported the king, and they raised the harbor chain, disallowing the family safe entry. With the stress, the storm, the boat trip, and the fact that she was in her last trimester, Isabel went into labor on the boat. Her baby, a little girl, was stillborn on that boat. Isabel survived to be pregnant three more times, resulting in a daughter, a son, and then a second son that only lived for a few months. It was likely this fourth birth that took the life of Isabel Neville at the age of 25. And we can't forget that there wasn't pain medication. It was seen as sinful. The whole reason you would be going through childbirth in the first place was to earn your way into heaven, and using pain medication would have been seen as cheating. You had to earn heaven, and part of the way you did that was by enduring all of the pain of childbirth, even for small mothers and huge babies. This is why it was seen as a common courtesy to wait until your wife was full grown to impregnate her. Even if you were a man that didn't care about your wife, you probably wanted heirs. And the best way to achieve that was to allow your wife to be adult size when she had to go through this painful process. Margaret Beaufort, the mother of King Henry VII and grandmother of King Henry VIII, was 12 when she became pregnant and 13 when she gave birth. Even at her full-grown size, she was a very small woman, but at 13, she was very much still child size. She had her one baby, and then as far as we know, she was never pregnant again, likely because of the physical trauma she suffered by giving birth at such a young age. Pain relief was seen as sinful for quite some time. Eventually, a couple of hundred years later, opium became an option followed by twilight sleep when opium was introduced into childbirth. My great-grandfather wrote a memoir before he passed, and in it he gives an account of assisting the doctor in my great-grandmother's home birth. He wrote with some enthusiasm about how it was his job to administer the chloroform on a rag to his wife when instructed to by the doctor. He was very pleased with himself. But in the 1500s, pain relief was sinful. Even asking for pain relief was a sin. In 1590, a Scottish woman was burned at the stake for asking for pain relief while giving birth to twins. I would have been so dead. During my second labor, my son came 
way too fast for any pain relief, but I distinctly remember requesting to be fully knocked out. Lucky for me, I was just told it was too late for that, and no one prepared the stake for me to be burned at. I, I would not have survived that back then. Queen Victoria used pain relief in the 1800s, and it was widely thought to have caused her son's hemophilia. We know now that it was genetics that caused it, and the inbreeding didn't help. But it was seen at the time as being punishment from God that she couldn't hang with a natural childbirth. If you are someone who had an epidural, we have not just science to thank for that, but the changing in cultural views that make it an acceptable thing to even request. Now, if you managed to dodge all of those bullets, if you and your baby were appropriate sizes, you didn't develop an infection, your baby understood the assignment and positioned itself properly, and you were able to have the baby before it killed you, there was another hurdle, postpartum hemorrhage. After having a baby, there was mostly a lot of praying that the bleeding would stop. Not a lot of treatment though. You just kind of waited and prayed. Some midwives did understand things like making sure the entire placenta was expelled. But if it wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot that could be done for it. They had some idea of what a successful childbirth was supposed to look like, but not a lot of information on how to go about encouraging one. The Birth of Mankind, or The Woman's Book, was popular in the second half of the 16th century. It did include a lot of misinformation, but it was the first comprehensive book on childbirth and was a great help to midwives who could become licensed after a three to six year internship. Midwives were mostly women who had assisted in many, many births. Bonus points if you could get the church to back you. You would do this by getting positive Yelp reviews from husbands. Living mothers and babies, happy fathers, the church would hear you out. Noble or royal births looked a little different. Noble women would lie in for some time for their last trimester, usually six to eight weeks. A confinement chamber would be prepared and they would make it as womb-like as possible. Windows would be closed and covered. Occasionally, if it was deemed necessary, the windows could be opened a little for a short time, but it was supposed to be avoided if at all possible. The noblewoman and her ladies would hold up there until the birth. It did help with protection from disease. No real interaction outside of the mother and her ladies kept illness mostly at bay. But I can't imagine it was so comforting to sit mostly alone in a dark, quiet room for sometimes multiple months. Pregnancy was also the reason for patriarchal primogeniture. Even if you were someone who thought a woman could rule, they had more challenges in ruling. Some of the more common reasons to think that a man had to be ruler was that they were thought to be more clever and less sneaky. But they also didn't have to risk their lives to supply an heir. Their wives did. And if she died, she could be replaced. The country didn't want to lose their monarch and their heir on the same day. With a female ruler, that was very much a possibility. Princess Charlotte was the only daughter of the Prince of Wales in 1817. The Prince of Wales didn't like his wife at all. It was a whole Anne of Cleves, King Henry VIII situation. 
and they only ever had just one daughter. She gave birth in 1817 because, as the only heir to the heir, she was expected to also supply an heir. Charlotte went into labor on the evening of November 3rd. But then the 3rd turned into the 4th, and the 4th turned into the 5th. Two days into her difficult birth, the princess gave birth to a large, stillborn boy. The baby seemed healthy, but all attempts to resuscitate him failed. Had it happened now, they would likely have monitored this labor and ended it with a C-section to save the baby, who was too large to be easily born naturally. Princess Charlotte was told she was sad, but accepted it. It was seen as the will of God and that more children would follow. Shortly after midnight, Charlotte began vomiting blood violently. She was cold to the touch and was having trouble breathing. Warm compresses were applied, the accepted treatment of postpartum hemorrhage. Charlotte's husband was not able to be roused. He was exhausted after his wife's two-day ordeal, and there had been some alcohol consumed. Princess Charlotte called out for her physician, and they arrived in her room to find her already deceased. England's only heir had now lost 100% of his children and grandchildren on the same day. And his brothers were also having trouble producing legitimate children. This probably goes back to their daddy issues that developed from their father, King George III, King George III of Hamilton fame. If you've watched Hamilton, the King of England that comes out and sings, King George III. The race was on to create a legitimate heir for England, and all of the king's brothers were in on the race. Two years later, one of his brothers had a legitimate baby girl. You may know her as Queen Victoria, like the Queen Victoria. But that presented another problem. Queen Victoria could indeed be queen, but she also had to supply an heir in order to end the succession crisis. And as shown by Princess Charlotte, her cousin, that could be tricky. Queen Victoria would become England's fifth regnant queen and supply England with nine of her own heirs. But for a while, England was a little unsure that the Hanoverian line of the royal family would be able to continue. The same issue was a problem when Queen Elizabeth II became queen at the age of 25. She was already the mother of two, Charles and Anne, but there was some discussion if it was safe for her to have any more children. She already had an heir and a spare, and it was seen as possibly too dangerous for her to try for a third. She was busy learning how to queen, but this was a topic of discussion amongst her advisors. This is partially why there is a nearly 10-year gap between the queen's second child, Anne, and her third child, Andrew. Modern medicine has made this less of a risk, but it has always been an added danger that only applies to giving birth. And that is where I'll leave it for now. It was a darker episode, but I hope you were able to enjoy it anyway. I like to share these women's triumphs, but also their challenges. And until fairly recently, this was a pretty huge challenge that was one of their biggest dangers. You can share your thoughts with me at longlivethequeenpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Long Live the Queen Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support it by sharing with your friends. If you hated it, share it with your enemies. 
Long live to all the queens out there. And until next time, bye. Guys, seriously, go watch Hamilton. It's on Disney Plus and King George III is kind of amazing. Watch it. Thank you.